don't leave the creation of technology to just traditional roles where people are developing technology in kind of behind closed doors. Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining me. My name is Franco Variano, and I'll be your host for the Tech Plus Art podcast. Tech Plus Art is the community for curious individuals and creators who are looking to make a dent in the universe. Together, we're exploring the new frontiers of creativity, humanity, and how emerging technologies will continue to shape our culture, professions, products, and much more. Join me on this journey as we speak with artists, makers, researchers, designers, and creators from all backgrounds and fields. Tech Plus Art is an inclusive community, and we make our content for you. So we want to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, topics you'd like us to explore or contribute to yourself, reach out to us on Twitter or via the website. You can check us out at maketechart.com or at maketechart everywhere else. So with that out of the way, let's get to today's episode. Today we're chatting with Anna Henson, an artist and researcher who's focused on spatial computing and immersive experiences. Anna's work focuses on studying and surfacing the human side of technology, specifically how new and emerging social computing technologies and immersive experiences are changing our relationship with each other, with technology, and with the companies that are behind these new tools. We had a very compelling conversation about technology, creativity, and the role of community development in this new and exciting world. Hey, Anna, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi, Franco. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, super excited to, you know, have the chance to speak with you and to learn a little bit more about you and the type of work that you do and all the amazing stuff that's going on. So before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from and what was it like growing up? What did you study? Those those kind of things. Yeah, I am originally from Atlanta and I studied, I've studied now kind of all over the place in the Midwest at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, which is where I recently graduated from with my master's of science. And then I also did an art degree in Scotland, which was at the Glasgow School of Art. So I've been really fortunate, I feel like, to kind of live a lot of different places. And in terms of growing up, I grew up, like I said, in the South and around a family of creative people. My mother was a exhibit designer in a science museum, which I grew up around all the time. So I would go to the science museum every day, basically after school and hang out with her and the taxidermists and the other strange, weird things going on in the underground of the science museum. And then I have a sister who's a musician and her name is Sarah Louise and she plays the guitar mostly and sings and writes music. And then I have a dad who's a computer programmer. So basically I feel like the work that I'm doing now is a big combination of all of those influences, for sure. I see them coming together kind of in this world of spatial computing and experience design that I work in now. So yeah, that's a little background. Yeah, absolutely. Super cool. And so how did you get to that line of work? Like how did all the different experiences, all the things you've been exposed to kind of contribute to the type of medium that you practice in today? Well, I think that it's a combination of a lot of things. Part of it is timing. It's just like what's happening and what's available. What's the new technology that's happening now? And the other part is that I've always just wanted to create immersive experiences, basically. Immersive experiences and storytelling through visual means primarily. So I started out in photography, studied photography in undergrad, and fell in love with storytelling through images that were shown in theories. So they were kind of like film still. 
And I would, I had a bunch of friends who I was hung out with theater people. I tried to be an actor (laughs) when I was younger. And I think you will hear this story from theater designers that they were on the stage at first. And then someone pulled them aside eventually and was like, have you ever thought about backstage? (laughs) 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 Which has definitely happened to me in high school where my theater teacher was like, why don't you think about designing? (laughs) You seem to like art. But I was glad to do that, actually, because I don't want to be on the stage. I want to be behind it. So I started to do the costumes and the sound design and doing things like posters and stuff. So kind of the visual and design elements of live performance came on really early, kind of in my life. But then... I didn't start working in theater formally until I think 2010, 2010, when a theater director that I knew knew that I was working on video and performance and said, can you do video design for my theater show? I thought, okay, I've never done that before, but sure, yes, I know how to like film actors and think about media on stage. So I had that opportunity and fell in love with this world of projection design. So I work in VR and AR now, but I have a whole career previously as a projection designer for theater and live performance. So that career kind of built itself because there weren't a lot of formal pathways to getting to become a projection designer at that time. There are more now programs in universities where they're starting to teach it. But in early 2000s, there really wasn't very many. So the way that people came to that job was sometimes from filmmaking, sometimes from live performance, sometimes from technology. So I worked as a projection designer in Chicago and New York for a while, for around a decade. I still do a little bit of that, but I've moved in now to work primarily in spatial computing, which has a lot of names. Some people might call it that. You could call it VR, AR, mixed reality, MR, XR. People love to argue about the terminology, but... Love the acronyms, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they do. But basically, it just means media in space that you can interact with, usually wearing a headset. But many people have used AR and might not even totally be conscious of it. For instance, in face filters. So on your phone, on Instagram, if you're looking at one of those face filters, that's augmented reality. But I primarily work in headsets, so head-mounted virtual and mixed reality experiences. And then because I have this background in performance and in storytelling, I collaborate often with performance makers, theater people, dancers, actors, directors, that sort of thing. So trying to merge the world of theater and live performance and head-mounted virtual and augmented experiences. Yeah, that's super cool. And so what were some of those first experiences where those two worlds really came together? Like, how did you transition from the stage as a creative medium into technology as a creative medium? And what were some of the projects maybe that happened in the middle that helped you kind of bridge that gap? Well, there was another stage in between theater and XR where I worked in experiential advertising for a brief moment. And that world was taking experiences that were interactive. So brands would want to promote something and they say, we want an interactive experience where people, members of the public or whoever was encountering this could actually interact and play with some kind of scenario that would help communicate whatever they were trying to communicate. So 
that is when I started to get into creative technology. And that was in New York. So I started to learn about the ways that you could use code to make interactive experiences. So in theater, I wasn't really writing code. I was mostly doing filmmaking and video editing and then live show control, which is more like triggering different videos or media to play at certain times when something is happening on stage. But in experiential advertising, we were building software apps basically to create experiences, for instance, using a Kinect, which is a depth sensor and body tracking system. It came out, people probably know what that is, but it it is a Microsoft product and was originally thought of to be for gaming, but actually a lot of developers realized that they could sort of hack it, quote unquote, and create interactive experiences where people's bodies could be tracked and you could control various digital or virtual elements. So we were using the Kinect, we were using Arduino, digital fabrication. So that kind of was the bridge from theater into interactive creative technology in advertising. And then into VR and AR, I did that at Carnegie Mellon. That was when I first found out about that and got to try a headset. So for instance, in terms of how the performance work kind of moved over into that direction, I found some dancers. My first instinct is to always look for collaborators. I'm an extremely collaborative person. I always work well with performer people or in teams. I love working with really great engineers and figuring out how we're going to best leverage the technology to tell the story that we want to. So when I moved to Pittsburgh, the first thing I did was try to find out where the weirdo dancers were. (laughs) (laughs) I asked a person who in the lab who I was working in, I said, all right, Tell me where all the weird dancers hang out. <laughs> and um, and he said, oh, you have to go meet these people called Slow Danger. And they are a performance duo based in Pittsburgh. Their names are Anna Thompson and Taylor Knight. And I started collaborating with them. They were interested in working with motion capture. I wanted to work with motion capture. And so I brought those two dancers into Carnegie Mellon to work in the motion capture lab and see what we could make together. So we did a music video, actually. They're also musicians. So we did a music video where I captured, it was using marker-based motion capture and volumetric capture. So I have to explain what that is. Marker-based motion capture is, if you think of what someone in a motion capture suit looks like, if you've ever seen behind-the-scenes footage on Hollywood films or things where actors are wearing these black, basically black full-body leotards, and they have little like silver balls on them. That's marker-based motion capture. The little silver balls are markers. So that will give you skeleton data, which is essentially data of how their body is moving in space based on their joints. So you can rig that to models that you make, a character, a 3D scan of their bodies, which is what I did. So I captured them using that, rigged 3D scans of their bodies and had them kind of animate in a pretty uncanny way. And then I used this other technique called volumetric capture. And volumetric capture is essentially, it's like photography or filmmaking, but in three dimensions. So if you think about not really a 3D movie, but like actually cameras on all sides capturing what they're seeing, which in this case was two dancers. So it's less animation and it's more 
filmmaking, essentially, but filmmaking in 3D. This would be called computational photography. So I blended those two techniques to see how can we represent people using these different kinds of motion capture? How can I put real people, real recognizable people in a virtual environment? What's the extension of photography, essentially? So it kind of made sense, starting from photography originally, especially working with actors and making portraits, and now into what is the new frontier of photography, photography and representation of people. So that was some of the earliest experiences that I worked on to move into AR and VR, but then my work has transformed a little bit now into more questions of embodiment and sensory design, and also into questions of the ethics of this immersive technology and kind of community-based dialogue about what is the user experience of people wearing headsets? How does this work or not work in society? So that's where my work is going now. Super cool. Yeah. And maybe just before we touch on that, you mentioned the role of collaboration just yeah. a few moments ago, specifically with, I guess, your, your time with the performance arts, but also with engineers, developers, other creatives yeah. that leverage technology in different way. Yeah. Also, I know just throughout your work, blending academia and the commercial world, uh, how does collaboration play an important role in this emerging field, in the type of work that you do? And what are some examples of that that you know, you've had to undertake? Collaboration to me is absolutely vital. It is one of the most satisfying things that I feel I can do with my time is share experiences and make creative projects with other people. And I think collaboration requires a lot of, of course, communication and translation from different people who may not come from the same background, who may have different ideas about how to go about a project. But essentially, the nature of collaboration is how can we communicate with a, a group of different people to make one thing that's bigger than what we could all create by ourselves. So I am a huge proponent of collaborative work and especially interdisciplinary collaborative work where you are working with people who you may not always think of as immediately being relevant to the project you're working on. Like, say, for instance, I'm doing computer science research, but maybe I want to work with dancers to find out how they're processing these computational ideas. Like, how can we learn new things that we wouldn't have expected from bringing in people who are outside the traditional world of technology development? So I'm a big proponent of interdisciplinary dialogue and of especially bringing in different stakeholders who may be impacted by the project that you're working on that you need to understand the impact that it's going to have in the world. So expand the dialogue, essentially. Don't leave the creation of technology to just traditional roles where people are developing technology in kind of behind closed doors. I think we need to open the conversation a lot more in society in general. But then in collaboration, in my personal work previously, I definitely work across academia and industry, and I see a big relevant thread between the two of them. I think academia has the privilege of kind of long thought processes and doing projects that don't immediately have to be monetized because you're not a business. An academic institution depends if you're a private or a public institution, but usually the projects that people get to work on or the research is not bound by the same restrictions as industry. 
So you can be experimental, you can be speculative, you can kind of not think about immediate commercial viability. And so that means that you get to try and test out and take a lot more risk. But on the flip side of that, you don't really have the same direct engagement with what is being commercially marketed immediately in the world. What are consumers thinking about? How do you iterate really quickly? What is being sold in the world, kind of? What values are being disseminated based on what the industry and and corporate world is doing? So I think it can be easy for academia to get out of touch and that in terms of industry, you tend to iterate really quickly. You tend to hopefully, quote unquote, fail fast. If you can fail fast, that's great. And you are forced to like try to stay alive, essentially. afloat in terms of having a viable business model. And industry also is pushing the development of technology in terms of the companies that are developing, say, AR headsets, VR headsets, uh, these types of things. They have the resources to really push and develop the new technology, but they need to work with academia to do some of the deeper research that, for instance, a lot of engineers who are doing computer vision PhDs, they'll do that in academia, they'll take it into industry. But I think especially outside of engineers, we need humanities people, we need social scientists, we need ethicists, we need artists. I've been thinking a lot about what is the role of the artist in society now and ways that artists are not valued for their contribution, I think, as much as they should be in terms of how they're able to ask questions about societal issues. And especially, I think, asking questions about technology and the role of technology in our lives. Humanities people, social scientists, psychologists, and artists, I think we need to really step it up and start like really asking the hard questions about how tech affects us, what role it plays in our lives, how it is monopolizing a lot of the parts of our lives and kind of executing a certain amount of control and bias. The question of bias in algorithms is huge. So artificial intelligence, these have real impacts in the world in terms of decisions that are being made, the ways that police operate, the ways that governments operate, the ways that technology is collecting and using our personal data and is not regulated. So I really think that it's time to have really ask really hard questions. And that means that tech can't just sort of sit by and say, oh, it's just an algorithm. It's not biased. It's a computer. It doesn't have an agenda. It absolutely has an agenda, and that agenda is coded by the people who are making decisions, who decide, you know, what products to make and how to build them. So, yeah, that's where I think collaboration extends into hard dialogue, encountering people who are different from you and asking hard questions and coming to some kind of compromise or understanding. So my collaborative work extends into my sort of, I don't know if I would say political, but my sort of more like social, conscious, and cultural work that I think needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to ask you, like, what do you feel is missing in the industry? What do you wish existed? So obviously, there's some sort of dialogue that needs to take place here between a bunch of different actors that I think, you know, you've surfaced super efficiently, you know, there, um, because I think a lot of people, we just kind of drift by taking things for granted. And, and, you know, we always kind of assume that we've had our iPhones and we've been giving away data. And like, we don't stop Mm -hmm. to really ask ourselves where it's being stored, how it's being used, what's being done with it. And it's very weird. 
It definitely is. I think that a lot of this tech was massively adopted without a lot of thinking about what its impact was really going to be. And the tech has also been designed really consciously to be addictive and to continue engagement so that, for instance, a lot of the business models of Silicon Valley companies are advertisements. It's all delivering ads to you. So the longer that they can get your eyeballs on something, the more ads they can make you watch, basically. And also, Also, the more information that you give to them, personal information, for instance, on social media, the more they know about you. So the more that they know about you, the more they can target you specifically in terms of not only do they know your age, your gender, your educational background, your interests, because we've all given them this data. We've freely given it to them. But they also, they know what your face looks like and they know what your face looks like over time. So for instance, Facebook, I mean, I I joined Facebook I don't remember, like 2006, something like that, really early. So there are photos. Personally, I have stopped uploading photos of myself on there, but I still use Instagram. So Instagram is owned by Facebook. It's hard to avoid. But for instance, in terms of talking about computational photography, there are massive machine learning networks that understand the way that your face has aged for instance, over time, so that you can be identified. My iPhone has facial recognition, so they know 3D version of my face. My face can now be picked out anywhere that there's a camera. And a lot of us, the problem with tech right now is that a lot of this is a black box to the public. The public doesn't necessarily have a background in knowing how this tech works. A lot of this stuff is behind closed doors. So I think in terms of conversation and dialogue, we need to work on how to communicate between the general public who has all kinds of priorities, all kinds of backgrounds and levels of understanding and the companies that are making the tech. But a lot of the companies that are making this tech don't really want to have those conversations <laughs> because it impacts their business. So that's where people like ethicists, philosophers, policymakers, and social scientists and community development people, frankly, come in, can have those conversations and can try to forge those connections. Yeah, absolutely. About that. <laughs> oh, that, that's super cool. And I mean, it's obviously something that needs to continue to evolve and that will continue to yeah. hopefully play, you know, a bigger and bigger role in the way that we stop and question these things. But as you see that conversation, you know, coming in and starting to take shape, how do you see the rest of the immersive experience, creative technology industry continuing to evolve? Obviously, this yeah. is going to play a role, but maybe more on the, on the hardware side or the experiential side, or, or even as you were talking about a little bit before, like the artist's role in how this whole space moves forward. I think that's that's a really great point because I don't want to come off as someone who hates technology, right? Because I love technology. Not only do I love tech, but I love immersive, embodied, sensory, spatial tech. I really have always wanted to create whole, basically world build. People who sometimes come from gaming or who come from storytelling can talk about the concept of world building. That's a very exciting potential that we have now to create these mixed reality worlds where I can have extra sensory experiences in the real world. So it's it's really very cool. Social virtual experiences are also very interesting. I'm really excited about the potential for social VR to be positive experience and to be able to connect people in ways that we can have kind of like tangible embodied experiences with other people who may be distant, far distant locations, but can share space virtually. And a big thing with social VR, I think, is that a lot of the behavioral standards in social VR have not been set very well. 
So social VR is, if you're kind of in the industry, is notorious for being a place where sexual harassment happens, racial problems, aggressive behavior, all sorts of things inside of social virtual experiences, like chat rooms, basically. Chat rooms or, or other kinds of gaming things. So in terms of the role of the artist and the role of community development, we have to think about how to design experiences that set good behavioral standards. We have to do research into that. And we have to take lessons from the real world into the ways that we design immersive experiences. Because really, an immersive experience can feel as real as your real life. Our brains are very plastic and we accept a reality that we perceive very quickly. It's kind of a survival technique. It's like an evolutionary survival skill for our brains to be able to perceive a reality and act on it, which is kind of like when, you know, we were being chased by a predator, like we need to act really quickly. Our fight or flight response needs to come in. So immersive experiences are no different. I accept something, this new reality as being actually happening to me now in real space, which is why when my virtual body is, you know, invaded basically by another virtual body, it feels real to me. It is real to me. So in terms of creating social spaces, we need designers and artists to think about how can I use design methods to encourage positive behaviors? How can I set this world up to be a positive experience, to tell the story that I want to tell or to give people a platform to share and have experiences. So that's one thing in social VR. And then I think in terms of just artists in general, artists for a long time have been the ways that a society feels the pulse of it changing, kind of. If you think about counterculture movements or other situations in which an artist is able to say something that other kinds of people with different jobs or different responsibilities are not able to, or they help us see situations from other perspectives and in new ways. So I think right now it is vital that artists engage with these questions and put work out there. And I also think that it's important that the artists are supported in doing that. And I think that's especially challenging in America right now. <laughs> There's not a lot of money for this kind of work. So we need to find alternative methods for how to support our artists and help them to be able to just live and do their work. So that's a challenge that artists have always faced, but I feel it strongly now. Yeah, absolutely. And so I know you've got a ton of things on the go, but what are some upcoming projects or focuses, if there's anything you can share, kind of moving beyond yeah. some of this conversation into you know the rest of, uh, of 2020? Well, so I'm excited about a whole bunch of things right now. I'm kind of finding a new voice in terms of community development and community engagement with the XR community. It's a really beautiful community. I have recently become a convert, kind of a convert of Twitter. I was really against it for a long time. I thought, I don't need that. But I have found that it's a fantastic place to talk with people, to share ideas, to share projects, and to kind of get to communicate with people who you would wouldn't otherwise really be able to talk to and to have these big dialogues. I mean, I had a tweet like a couple of weeks ago where I was literally like talking on Twitter with a person who helped invent the HoloLens. And I was thinking like, this is insane. How is this happening? And with all the other developers 
authors and other creators who had opinions about what we were talking about. So Twitter is very exciting, but how do you take conversations on Twitter and extend them into the real world? Because Twitter can be very, a constant stream of new things. And it's a very easy way to just like yell about something and then drop it. So I'm working with various organizations and some different people to kind of brainstorm ideas for how we can extend questions on user experience, design methods. In XR, there's not a lot of standards yet, kind of a wild west, new frontier. So in terms of the idea of best practices or user experience methods, there's not a lot of concrete information about that. And it's a big open area. So I'm working with certain XR community people to try to start a conference, a forum, summit, thinking about that kind of thing. So the community development is one side of the world. Specifically, there's a community on Twitter and online and on Discord called We Make Reality. And so I'm working with people from there and also across academic institutions to try to work on that concept. So community development is one side. And then another side that I'm excited about is continuing to make artwork continuing to make performance and make virtual and augmented reality experiences. So actually coming up in July, I'm currently in development on a new dance mixed reality participatory experience that is going to be shown at the Kennedy Center in DC in July. So I'm very, very excited about that. The Kennedy Center is an awesome venue. So I am working with Slow Danger, who I mentioned before, the two dancers that I collaborate with on developing a new dance piece that is going to be participatory. So the audience actually will be a part of how we shape this mixed reality world. The Kennedy Center has a new venue called The Reef, which I believe is their newest building and I think kind of may host more experimental or interactive projects. So we're doing that in July. And then I'm also just kind of working on various consulting work that does mixed reality projects, augmented reality things, and trying to blend all these worlds together, sort of thinking about like interaction design from a holistic perspective. And then talking also, I think, trying to start some conversations about ethics and policy. So there are some great people who are working on that. If people are interested in that, Mozilla is a really wonderful company that has a lot of resources in terms of ethics and open data and kind of the new web. They also are working on social VR stuff. There's a product that they have called Hub that can be accessed either on browser um, or in VR. And it's a really cool kind of new playground for figuring out how social virtual experiences can happen. So all stuff that's kind of on my horizon. That's super cool. Yeah. And we'll definitely make sure that we link to your social handles, your Twitter, your website and stuff like that. People can see up And then hopefully if anybody's in the Washington area, they can check that out. Yeah. And I'm also based in New York. So there's meetup and all sorts of stuff that is happening in New York. But definitely Twitter now, now that I'm actually participating, it's easy to get a hold of me on Twitter. So people have interesting ideas or want to chat about this, I would love to share. Awesome. That's super cool. And so maybe as a way to wrap up this amazing conversation, if you were to kind of distill the experience that you've kind of gathered so far and share it with a younger yeah. version of yourself, what words of advice or insight would you would you share about the industry and, and kind of what you've learned for anybody who's getting started today? Very good question. I would say don't worry if you don't 
see people who look like you working on these projects because they're out there and basically like find mentors and build community. I think what I would say is that there may be times where you feel like this world that you want to get involved in is not really open to you or is not friendly or you don't have the right background or you didn't study computer science when you were 10, so therefore you can't participate in it. No, you can learn. There are resources and places that you can start to try things out. But also like the best advice I think for anybody is to not be afraid to reach out to people. I think also a a great thing about social media, I know I've said a lot of things that are negative about it, but a great thing about social media is the ability to reach out to people and to ask for advice and to be open about that. So I think finding community and sort of seeking out mentors is really important. And if you don't see them out there, then become that so that you can help the next person, really. (laughs) Lift each other up. One thing that I think is really wonderful about some really great people in this space is that they say, okay, I've gotten to this point where I now have the ability I'm going to open the doors for other people, other underrepresented groups, other minority groups, other people who who also have have things to contribute. So, I would say find mentors and stick with them and and if you don't see them, become it yourself. <laughs> Absolutely, That's super well said. It's amazing. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. This is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation, Franco. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Tech Plus Art Podcast. We're a very small team behind this project, so we greatly appreciate all your support. If you love our content and these podcasts, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. This really does go a long way in helping us get discovered and reach more creators. As always, you can find us online at maketechart.com and at maketechart everywhere else. See you soon.